Welcome once again to GMAT Club's MBA podcast. Every episode, we seek to bring experience-based insights to people in the GMAT Club community who are applying to MBA programs. If you found this podcast, you're likely already know about GMAT Club, the unrivaled location online to find high quality and quantity information about every aspect of the MBA application process, from tips and courses for the GMAT to finding the right consultant for your personal statement. I'm Brian Phoebe, CEO of Gurufy, a leading online consultancy that provides high-level editing and consulting for your personal statement and other application materials. We have accomplished writing consultants who every year help clients earn admission as top schools in the world. In fact, uh, just about every cycle, uh, you'll find Gurufy clients getting to all of the top schools, HBS, Stanford GSB, Wharton, NSEAD, Oxford SEAD, etc., we have a fantastic track record because our consultants work with you to produce an essay that is compelling, interesting, and unique to your voice and experience. There is no cookie-cutter candidate, so we don't want cookie-cutter essays. Contact us at gurufi.com. That's G-U-R-U-F-I.com in order to get help with your personal statement. All right, so this week, we are talking to Evan Bailey, a second-year MBA student at Emory University's Goizueta School of Business in Atlanta. Uh, he's going to give some insights into his journey to that school, what he thinks makes that school unique, kind of his process of applying. Um, you know, as someone who comes from a non-quantitative background, he has some interesting insights in terms of preparing for the GMAT. And in our consultants corner, two Gurufi consultants, Sam and Nina, talk about the most common mistakes they see in MBA personal statements and how to avoid them. All right. Let's get started. So this week, uh, we're talking to Evan Bailey, uh, who's an MBA student at Emory University's Goizueta School of Business. And um, I want to welcome you to the the GMAT Club MBA podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How did I do? So there's this thing where I'm one of these people who have I ever mispronounced something the first time. No matter how many times I've been corrected on it, I will revert back to my bad initial pronunciation. And so, Goizieta is one that I got wrong the first time I heard it years and years ago. And I think that I keep doing it. Did I get that right? You're close. It's Goizueta. Goizueta. See, I knew it. <laughs> so I, yeah, it's hard. You got to make sure you pronounce every letter. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. I will, I've been, I've been uh, properly corrected and I'll get that right. Um, when you're talking about a top 20 school, uh, there's no, there's no excuse for getting it wrong. All right. Um, so one of the ways that I like to think about um, these conversations with, with students uh, or applicants even is that uh, MBA of all the professional schools and people who listen to the podcast have heard me say this, it's, it's a little different in that it's not strictly mandatory. And then like, if you want to become a doctor, you got to go to med school, no matter how smart and clever you are. If you want to be a lawyer, you got to go to law school, no matter how smart or clever you are, parentheses, yeah, I know Texas and California, you can get around it, but whatever. For the most part, you got to go to law school. Um, an MBA isn't like that. You have kind of two choices to make, whether one, you want to do it. And second, there's a choice about like, when is the right timing for you? And so as you think about, or as you reflect on, uh, your journey to the MBA, what what was it that helped you know that this is something you wanted to do and that it was also the right time to do it? Uh, yeah, so I guess as far as whether it was something I wanted to do, so for me, the, the real catalyst was I knew I wanted to get into uh, consulting. So prior to my MBA, I was working for a compliance consulting firm in Massachusetts, which is really just a fancy way of saying people paid us to help them help talk to the government on their behalf. <laughs> so I really enjoyed that, but I kind of wanted to transition to something else, something a little bit more strategy focused. And I realized the MBA would be a not only a really good way to kind of jumpstart that, but there's also just so many skills you need for that kind of role that I didn't have uh, I hadn't taken a math class since 2009. So even just that basic finance stuff, I would, really didn't have those skills. So for me, that was why I decided to go get the MBA was because 
I needed to learn how to do those things. Uh, as for when, so I, so I guess kind of probably the biggest change would be, I felt like I hit the point in my organization where I wasn't really going to grow much further. I wasn't really going to get much more out of the role. Uh, for me, part of it was also obviously the COVID-19 pandemic. I was already home, not really, I we were in lockdown. I wasn't really going anywhere. So I was kind of like, well, this is as good time as any to start studying for the GPAD. Yeah, I'm really interested in, in, in especially the first part of what you said, which is um, you hadn't taken math classes, right? Yeah. So um, if you're coming from um, kind of a non-quantitative uh, background, the GMAT mm -hmm. in particular can feel like a pretty intimidating process. Um, I remember, like, yeah, I was a humanities guy straight through. Um, and going back to relearn math, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, I literally, the first time I sat down to review math stuff, I was like, wait, how do you divide fractions again? This is <laughs> incredibly basic, like, oh, I've really got, and this is all, you know, I'd done calculus right, or whatever right. in high school, but you've got to rebuild all of that. So was that a challenging mm -hmm. process to, like, get mm -hmm. yourself up to the point where, you 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 can be at the starting line, so to speak. Yeah, so I think I think it, it, it. I mean, I'll be honest. It definitely was challenging. Uh, it was one of those things, though, that what really helped was trying to sit down and just do the work, but also find resources to help my help me understand and learn. So when I would do a problem and I got it wrong and I just could not figure out how you're supposed to get this right. I would look into different resources. I actually use GMAT Club a lot, looking at the forums and looking at how other people answered the problem to figure out how they would do it. And then when someone referenced something where I'm just like, I have no idea what this rule is, you go and you look it up. So there has to be a certain amount of, you have to kind of push yourself to do it, but it is definitely doable. There are so I feel especially with the GMAT, there are so many resources out there now to at least provide the information where if you are willing to get that and then do, I think probably the hardest part is just pushing yourself to sit down, do it and recognize what you're not getting wrong or not getting right and actually put the time in to learn why your answers are wrong or why the answer is right and think about how you're going to get there. So I know for me, what really helps was I kind of forced myself to set aside an hour every day to just sit down and do these math problems and review these concepts. I got like the giant 400 page Kaplan book of GMAT math concepts you need to know. And I just did it cover to cover because that was what I needed. Obviously that's not what everyone's going to need. I was just way behind where I needed to be. Yeah, I mean, obviously like if you're coming uh, to this from like a quantitative background, a lot of this stuff um, it is going to be second nature, and like it, right. it, to the extent that you need to study for it, it can be uh, pretty perfunctory. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, like one of the reasons I ask this is I know that a lot of people will feel dissuaded. Mm -hmm. um, like, look, this is something I want to do, but you know, I was an English literature major right. in college or something, um, and so I don't know if I can do it. And you know, yeah. I even think about like you know. My wife is a doctor, but but she was a women's studies major. And so she actually left college and then had to kind of do the whole thing where like, okay, I'm going to take all the classes a couple of years later. So I know mm -hmm. that it's a, it, it is a process. Um, yeah. And every person starts their application process from a different position. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people, like I said, who's because I have a humanities background. Um, I think that in terms of how, you know, whether it's humanities or social science or whatever, like in, in terms of teaching you how to think and be rigorous, it can be really helpful in other ways. And, yeah. you know, not to dismiss the quantitative side, but there is this element of like, I could sit down and learn the math that I needed to know much more easily than I could like become really proficient in like writing or reading at a high level. Like th those yeah. are skills that maybe take a little bit more time. And so this is all to say mm -hmm. that, um, and your background would tend to indicate this, which is that you, you, can, you can do this even if you feel like, you know, me, like, how do you divide a fraction? <laughs> like, if that's if that's the point that you started from, where all of that mm -hmm. stuff that you had memorized to take the AP Calc test, you know, X years ago has, has been lost. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And 
I think the one thing that really helps with the GMAT specifically is that it's not, you know, you don't need to have taken AP calculus. It's all the math concepts you learned in high school before that. It's really just learning to kind of think about how to apply them in different ways. And a lot of the math it really is pretty basic stuff, like just multiplying and dividing. It's all about learning how to think through and think logically and recognize how you can use that. And I think this is, I mean, going back to the GMAT club, that's part of why the forums I found to be were so helpful because there's so rarely just one way to do a problem on the GMAT. So just going out and reading how other people approach these problems over time and doing 50, 100 of these over the course of several weeks, you eventually kind of learn how to think about it and you see the trends so that when you see that problem, you say, oh, okay, I know what I need to do now. And that's part of where that discipline comes in, just forcing yourself to sit down and do it when you don't really have that kind of knowledge. But I think, like you said, that humanities background and training yourself how to think is really helpful because obviously there's the quantitative part of the GMAT, but there's also the verbal section. And that's going, and those skills are going to be really crucial there. And I mean, if you can save time there, that's more time you can spend on everything else, but also even just in terms of how you read, think about and approach the problems, having that kind of refined critical thinking process is so helpful. And you were applying, you said, kind of during COVID and that was a, a bit of a different application process. You know, mm -hmm. everything kind of is up and up in flux. Um, were you one of the people who who ended up taking the GMAT uh, from your your house, where you've got to like uh, <laughs> like lift up the the laptop and show that there's no one no one hiding behind you, providing you answers <laughs> and all that all that business that they had going on? Yeah, I was. So at the time, I was hoping to take it in person to avoid that, because like you said, you have to like take pictures of the room and show them and you have to hold up the laptop and you have to show yourself with your arms stretched out to show there's nothing in reach. There's no like paper in underneath the desk with answers. Uh, so I was hoping to avoid all that. But the closest in-person center to me was something like 50 miles and it was only available on like a random Wednesday. So I took it online, which was, I think it's, it's an interesting mindset, right? Because you're, 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 you're kind of in your home. I mean, I was in my bedroom because my girlfriend worked from home because obviously we're in lockdown and I'm kind of like, you're in your bedroom and you're taking the GMAT and it's kind of hard to get yourself into that mindset sometimes, but it's also in a way kind of helpful because there's no, you're in an environment where you're comfortable with it. You kind of know where everything is. Uh, it's one of those things where I think it, it can be a little strange at first, but it can be helpful if you take it a second time because you get used to it. There's also this aspect where your camera's on, so the proctors are watching you. So sometimes you'll be in the middle of something and they'll stop to ask you what you're doing because it looks kind of weird. <laughs> So there's definitely a bit of a learning curve to it. It was very interesting, very, not what I had expected, but I think after take, especially the second time I took it, it was kind of helpful because I knew what I was getting into. I was in somewhere where I could relax. I didn't have to worry about like traffic and getting there late because I was already there. Yeah. And in terms of from the moment or the day that you said, I'm going to um, get an MBA, um, mm -hmm. until when you, sort of, I guess, hit send on your last application. What, what was that timeline like in, in terms of how long, um, mm -hmm. how long it was? Yeah, so I started, must have been around May of 2020, was when I got the first book and started practicing. And then my last, and then I act, I officially submitted all the applications uh, June of 2021. So what's that about? Uh, Seven-ish months, give or take. Uh, yeah, about that. So that was kind of the whole timeline. I spent a lot of that time, though, like I said before, practicing. I think I spent about five months or so just practicing and working on the GMAT because I knew I didn't have the best kind of grades. Go And there were a lot of other parts of my application that weren't great. 
So I knew I was really going to need a strong GMAT score to kind of help boost my profile because that's the thing with admissions, right? Everything is kind of like a series of levers. The more of one thing you have, the less of another thing you need. If you've got a really good GMAT score and really good grades, then some of those other things aren't as important. But if you don't have some of those other things, the good GMAT score helps kind of boost your application up. So that was my strategy. And I figured I would take more time to take the GMAT, intentionally skip the round one application deadlines so that I could have a stronger application going into round two, because I knew going into it, I wasn't going to get another shot at this. I wasn't going to wait another year and try this again. That just wasn't an option for me. So I decided I would go forward with whenever I could have the strongest application possible. So I started studying or I stopped studying for the GMAT and actually ended up taking it towards the end of 2020. And then around the time I stopped studying for the GMAT and started and actually signed up to take it, that was when I really did my deep dive on preparing the application materials. So answering the essays, kind of refining my resume, things like that. Uh, I mean, it, it's definitely something where you can do both at the same time. And I think if you have the ability to do so, it's definitely helpful it's because more time is always going to help you refine everything. But I knew personally, I'm one of those people where it helps if I can just focus on one problem at a time. So I wanted to just focus on doing one thing well, and then worry about everything else. I like how you phrase like the the levers, right? And and it's one of the things that when I when I work with clients, a lot of times they'll have a friend or someone they know who got into X university and they want to mm -hmm. replicate it. And, you know, say, look, there's, I don't know why your friend got in. I don't know them. Uh, I don't know what their grades are. I don't know what their GMATs are. I don't know what, like, there are a bunch of different ways. And it can be frustrating because there's, there's like this um, degree of alchemy to it, right? It's like, mm -hmm. what's the secret process by which I'm going to, you know, have my soul evaluated. Right. Um, and <laughs> that can be really frustrating. And mm -hmm. so, you know, one of the things I think that um, I, I, you know, doing this in collaboration with GMAT Club. There's a lot of great things on that site. The one thing that I think happens a lot of times on the forums that I don't love is people like kind of holistically evaluating each other's applications. I think it's just one, it, it's needless stress, right? Like yeah. you, you've already sent your application away. Why do you need Johnny to tell you whether or not you're going to get in? <laughs> and second, like, what does he know? Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, maybe if you had a 0.6 GPA and a fifth percentile GMAT and you hadn't worked in the last five years, then yeah, okay, we can tell you you're probably not going to get into Wharton. <laughs> but like most people exist in this kind of middle ground where it's about finding ways to nudge up. Mm -hmm. So, how can you get a little bit better in um, your GMAT? Like, how yeah. can you be more thoughtful in terms of your letters of recommendation, in terms of yeah. the construction of your CV, like whatever it is, there's mm -hmm. a million, well, not a million, there's, you know, mm -hmm. uh, half a dozen to a dozen things mm -hmm. that, you know, you, that you can operate these levers, as you say, to make sure that it's, um, that you present the best vision version of yourself in, in a yeah. really compelling way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of a key aspect to it too, that a lot of people don't really think about is how you present it, the story you tell. And I think that's a big problem with these kind of like on the forums where, or even on, and so many websites do this, where people go in and they put like, these are, you know, this is what, what kind of job, like, am I in banking or whatever? This is my undergrad GPA. This is where I went to undergrad. And this is my GMAT score, my GRE score. Am I going to get into Warren? Am I going to get into Fuqua or whatever? And it really overlooks the value of the story that you tell in your application. And I know from personal experience, that was probably the strong, that was actually what I was told by the admissions department after I got in was that was one of the most compelling parts of my application was just the story I told and how I kind of had this cohesive story I told throughout the entire application of here's who I am, here's what I've done. Here's why I'm going to get my MBA. And here's how I am unique from every other applicant. And I just kind of leaned into those things. And there are some things in there that weren't so great, some bad decisions I'd made in the past. And I just kind of leaned into it, owned it. And even during interviews, when these came up, you just have to have a sense of humor about it. 
I talked about drop when I was uh, in college, I actually dropped out of college at one point. So there was this kind of weird gap in my resume. And I just kind of leaned into that. And I would make jokes about it, but I would use it as part, I would use humor as a way to help explain it as part of the greater narrative of why I know that this is what I need to do. And that this is the real fit for me. And I think having that story and that kind of thoughtfulness really goes a long way in selling the application, even if you don't have some of these other things that they traditionally would be looking for. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. I've told a lot of clients before that if you can't fix it, feature it. That is like, mm -hmm. a lot of times people say, well, I don't want to talk about this bad thing. It's like, look, it is going to be talked about yep. in that room where they're evaluating. So in your case, it was, you know, you can't just ignore the fact that there's a gap of however many months or years um, yep. in your transcript. So if you can't fix that problem, feature it, make it part of your story. So you say, mm -hmm. you know, you're a person who has a past, a present, and a future that they're trying to get to. Mm -hmm. um, and the easiest thing in the world would be to stack any business school with 200 of the exact same person, right? Yep. Say, look, we're only like, we can have a super simple algorithm that is GPA times GMAT and whatever. You'll yep. weigh the the college or that they went to by, with, by some metric and you can produce that. But no school wants to do that. Yeah. Um, and so again, like there are limits, but the this idea that you talk about where, you know, tell a compelling story that's true and that resonates with your experiences and that seems reasonably connected to what you want to do and become, mm -hmm. that's the best kind of overall strategy or way to approach this. Because one, it's honest. And I think honesty can, uh, it comes across uh, in a well-done application. Um, mm -hmm. And it also kind of acknowledges that you're human and mm -hmm. they're looking to admit people and yeah. you know like stumbles are fine right mm -hmm. um and the number of people who get into great programs who have blips or stumbles or blemishes or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. um especially when they just talk about it and and oh, yeah. do it in a in a compelling and honest way it's it really helps uh it can help you stand out if you do it mm -hmm. yeah and i think not only is that exactly right i love what you said about they want people and they want real people because i remember one of the first things that happened, I think, yeah, probably the first or second day when I was at Emory during our orientation, you know, there's that like, oh, let's talk about the profile of this class and what makes you so unique. And I remember during pre, at, when I've gone to other schools, there's been a lot of attention paid on undergraduate G, or previous GPA and test scores. And what I really liked about Emory was they didn't really focus on that. They mentioned it, but they just kind of blew past it and then focused on the really interesting things about our class. So we talked about people who'd come from people there. We talked about someone who had visited, I think, six of the seven continents doing different kinds of things. We talked about people who'd been, who'd gone from doing Teach of America to becoming principals at, or principal at, school, at the school they were working at. And just really interesting I guess the human aspect of the application, the things that made the people stand out. Because like you said, you can easily fill a room with every, you can easily fill an MBA class with people who only got above a 700, 720, 730, 750, whatever your cutoff is going to be, or people who have a 4.0 GMAT. You can fill any, G, any MBA class with just those people but it's having that human aspect that is interesting. And I think it's also about, I mean, every every MBA program wants everyone to get a job, right? And that human aspect goes such a long way to interviewing and getting a job because that's what employers want to see. They obviously want you to be able to do the work, but they also want to be able to work with you. If they don't want to work with you, no one's going to hire you. And I think that's something that they're keeping in the back of their head too, because they want their entire class to get great jobs. So that's a nice transition to um, Emory and mm. kind of where they popped into your radar in the application process. What made you identify them and what ultimately um, made you choose them? I assume that they're not the only school that you applied to. Uh, they were not. So 
Emery popped in or popped onto my radar pretty early in the process. I went to one of the uh I think it was the MBA fair events, uh one of those ones where they bring in schools from all over the country. And I just happened to kind of go into one of Emery's uh events and I was talking to a couple people and I was just really struck by how much I liked the people I was talking to. Everyone was very friendly, very approachable, very laid back, and I really liked that. Uh, especially in a more kind of formal event like that where you feel kind of nervous. It was just this huge load off my mind. But uh, that was when Emery first got on my radar. And then after that, I was really focusing on employment outcomes. So how much of the class is getting a job? How much are they making on average? And what kinds of jobs are they making? Because that for, or getting, because that for me was the big thing. I wasn't going to get my MBA because I just want another degree. I was doing it because of the job I wanted to get. So that for me was kind of what then moved Emory up towards the top of the list because, I mean, looking at the job reports going back several years, everyone gets an internship. Some 98, 99%, I think, uh, end up having a job within or have a job by the time of graduation or within three months of graduation, whatever the statistic they track is, the jobs they were getting were overwhelmingly the ones I was interested in. Emory as a whole is very more focused on consulting, so that was a really good fit for me. But it also had strong programs outside of that. There were a lot of people doing things outside of consulting, and I like that because I wasn't 100% certain that this is how things were going to go. Life, life happens might find a job somewhere else I really like or just might not find any consulting firms that really resonated with me during recruiting. So I like that there were also some other opportunities available. And then after that, uh, once I got in, my girlfriend and I were going to visit different campuses because we wanted to see, would we actually want to be in this place for two years? And I mean, we absolutely loved Atlanta. We came down here for a week from Boston. So we came down in the winter when it was about 10 degrees Fahrenheit for us, and it was 70-something here in Atlanta, so that was a huge selling point on its own. Yeah, I mean, there there are schools, um, and there are people who approach the, the MBA process of like, let me find a spot that I can endure for two years, mm-hmm. and I think that that is the wrong approach, which is like, uh, like I'm not going to like it, but this is going to put me on a path. And so obviously yeah. I, I think that what you were doing in terms of finding a good professional fit or like an academic fit that moves you on the professional track, mm-hmm. that's smart. But I also like the fact that um, you cared about liking the people there. Cause like, could, could I, would I enjoy myself? It's not, it's yeah. not a two year party, of course, but like you're, you're going to work <laughs> and et cetera. But my experience in, in, with these sorts of things is that people who say, well, I don't really think that this is a place that I would enjoy, but it's a, it's a box I need to check. Mm-hmm. They end up getting so much less out of it. Um, yeah. And it, it, I think it undermines their long-term outcomes because it, you can tell when someone is, you know, there and just kind of like, you know, gritting their teeth and getting through it mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like, I like these people. Uh, yeah. I like the environment. I feel at home. I can be the best version of myself. Those are all things that ultimately um, matter more than people uh, give them credit for. And so when I, I used to be a university professor and mm-hmm. and certainly now when I'm, um, I'm consulting clients, it's it's the one thing that I think that they're always surprised that I'll kind of grill them on a little bit, which mm-hmm. is like, do you, is this actually a place you want to be? Yeah. You know, like it's whatever name and I'm not going to, you know, throw any school under the bus or anything, but like, um there are schools that kind of have a reputation for like like we're gonna we're gonna you know kick your butt for two years but you'll get a good job and i'm like you know you're usually in your 20s this is two years that you want to waste at a place that you hate um and so i i think it's wise um Mm -hmm. that that was you know um both an introductory component for you and and a thing that 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 brought you through the process um and so you're there now you're mm-hmm. you've finished your first year right and you're mm-hmm. in the middle of second yep. we're about to start uh second um so what are the things that have kind of surprised you um about your experience at emory it's a good question so i think 
the thing that maybe surprised me the most was uh, it probably shouldn't have, but uh, the core semester really surprised me. So uh, the core being kind of those standard classes you take at every MBA program. At Emory, we break, we put the entire core into that first semester. And the way that works is we essentially break that first semester up into what we call blocks. So you'll have five, maybe six classes a block. You'll have exams, and then you immediately go into the next block. So you have some core classes that are going to span and cover multiple blocks, and some that are going to be just one. But what that means is that it moves very quickly kind of from the start. And I think that was something I had underestimated and wasn't the best surprise. But I think a, a very nice surprise, though, was, I guess, how genuine a lot of my first impressions were. That a lot of my first impressions were how helpful people were and how much, uh, how supportive the Emory community was and just how laid back it was. And that, to me, was... It was a very nice surprise to realize that was that was something that I was that that first impression was very accurate, very on point. It, there's always this aspect of when you're look, recruiting and applying, you know, you always know the school is kind of putting their best foot forward. They're always putting forward the parts that make them look good. And it was a very pleasant surprise to realize just how accurate that was. I mean, even just today, this morning, I was in an uh, event to help some first-year students recruit. We were trying to explain to them, this can be a pro this process can be as competitive as you want, but we are here to help you because we want all of you to succeed. And just explain to them that helping each other is, a co is going to actually be the best thing they can do for themselves because we all look better when we all succeed. And I realized that it was a very pleasant surprise to realize just how much that idea is kind of boiled or is ingrained into Emory's DNA, that helping everyone succeed really makes all of us just do that much better. Yeah, and I guess that sort of transition also to the other thing I wanted to ask about is that uh, the school has earned a reputation for its collegiality, it's a tight-knit, it's, it's smaller. Um, in terms of um, both the class size and like the the number of professors per student, um, how do you think that that's that's shaped uh, your experience or kind of the the experience of students who go through? So I think it re I think with the it kind of shapes the that more collegiate environment in a way because you know everyone you might not know them well but you at least know them well enough to recognize them. So you, everyone kind of knows everybody to a certain extent. So you are, people are naturally going to be a little bit more collegial because we're all kind it's almost like we're all in this together in a way. We all know each other. We're all kind of going through everything together. So you're a bit more inclined to support everybody because you know everybody a little bit more. I think the other aspect of that is that it also has a lot to do in how we structure our classes. Uh, like a lot of programs, we do a lot of group work in our classes. A lot of, most of your assignments end up getting done in a team. So you spend a lot of time and uh, because uh, classes are a little bit small, you very times often end up in groups with people you've never really worked with before, which I really enjoy because there's always this element of you're all pretty much always learning how to work with a new team and new dynamic and new people or people you at least haven't worked with before, which for me was another really valuable aspect of the MBA, of getting an MBA was just getting exposure to working in different teams and having different roles in teams. So I've had opportunities to be more of the logistics person on the team, make sure we're on track, we're meeting our deadlines. We're, stay, we're reaching our goals and we're working towards where we need to be. In others, I've had more of a leadership role and kind of looking at how the whole thing is going. And others, I've been doing more of kind of like the research and things like that. And I've had an opportunity to just try out all these different roles, which for me was really valuable coming from a background where all the work was much more individualistic and there wasn't really that team component. And it's a lot easier to kind of get used to that and learn to work with the team when you're in this more collegial environment because people are just generally easier to work with. Yeah, and so um, 
most of the people who are listening to this, uh, they're in the process of applying, mm -hmm. right? And in a lot of ways, you're an ideal person to talk to because, um, you know, being in the middle of the business school um, process, you've just completed, like, I guess a year or a year and a half ago, the application process, and you're now um, in the middle of business school itself. So you can see how maybe some of the assumptions or thoughts that you had about what to expect, et cetera, are either true or untrue. Um, so I guess the, the first thing that, I, that I'd be curious to hear is if you could go back and talk to yourself. Like, mm -hmm. so imagine, you know, you hop out of the time machine and it's the, the day that you decided that you were going to apply um, mm -hmm. for an MBA. What would you tell yourself about um, either what's to come or maybe something that you didn't do well uh, in the application process? Um, mm -hmm. You know, like what advice would you give to yourself as you're as you moved through this uh, application process in business school your first year? So I think the advice I'd give to myself and probably the thing I struggled with the most is to just get started. It's really easy to kind of get all these things and say you're going to do it. And it seems like a really difficult task to get started because sometimes you're not even sure where to start. And that was definitely something where I kind of delayed a little bit at the start because I kept trying to like look at different things, but didn't really dive in. So I think my advice would be to just dive in and get started. Maybe you find out after a few days that it's better that you are focusing on the wrong thing and you're going to shift and focus on something else. But with especially with a large task like this, to a certain extent, you have to just jump into it and pick something and have that be what you're going to get started on. Because otherwise, it's really easy to talk yourself out of it or just continue to put it off until last minute. Yeah, it's it's interesting. People have so many different approaches to these things. Um, and I think it's really sort of dependent on the person. It sounds like you took a more piecemeal, like let me do this chunk, then this chunk, and other people will, will sort of work it throughout. I know like in the personal statement side of things, mm -hmm. I'm, I wasn't one of those people who could, uh, you know, like you'll hear people say like, oh, I've been working on this for three months. It's like three months, like it's this is like a two weekend <laughs> kind of thing. Like sit down, write something, think about it over the course of the week and then next Saturday refine it. And like, you know, but that's that's how I would do it. Um, and I, I think that that's part of it, right? Is that you figure out a way that works for you. But the thing that you say is absolutely true, which is to like, just start with something. And right. there's this analysis paralysis that can occur at every step along the way. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times like the personal statement ends up being like the most daunting one because you sit down and you're like, I've got to, in 500 words or whatever the cap is, I've got to let the universe know who I am. And that can be tricky. Um, yeah. But you know, the, it's just like, start right and then as you go along you make mistakes fix it do it better and like you and you'll go forward um but i think that that's you know for so many people who stretch out the process um i don't know longer isn't the right word but like they they don't take assertive control right of, throughout their own application process in ways and like you know months later they're still sort of lingering on things it's like no like yep attack it get it done and then do the next thing uh that you need to do did you feel overwhelmed in the application process at any point oh i mean from the very start i there was so much going on and i felt extremely overwhelmed uh part of the reason i kind of took that piecemeal approach was just because i had no idea how to even get started and at one point uh I was sitting with my girlfriend. We had just sat down to have dinner. And she goes, you know, you haven't really been doing anything with this MBA stuff. When are you going to get started? <laughs> and at that point, I'm thinking to myself, I've been started for like a month. <laughs> and she's like, well, how's it going? What have you done so far? And I was thinking to myself and I'm like, I bought a book and I've read the introduction to a couple of books, but... I hadn't really done anything. And that's where for me, I kind of got started with just, okay, every day, pick something, like have something where at the end of the day, I can say, well, today I did this. Today, I at least, uh, using the personal statement is a great example. Uh, okay, I didn't write the personal statement, but I've got three bullet point ideas of things to bring up. Okay, I've taken, next day, I've taken those three bullet points. I've combined them. I've got I've got my first sentence and I've got an idea for I've got an outline for what's going to come next. 
maybe I don't have it filled in, but I've got format set up. All right, next day, now I start to fill in that first half. And that's kind of how it ends up taking a little while for me. But that was also as I kind of got the ball rolling and got more things under my belt, it just kind of became easier to keep going and keep getting more things done and get more and more into it. So that was what worked for me. But I definitely know some people, like you said, one you'll write it one weekend, you edit it the next, you're good to go. But at a certain point, you just need to grab something and get started and go from there. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people say like, I, I just wasn't feeling inspired or, you know, there's yeah. always something you can do. There are like yeah. these uh, call them monkey work tasks or whatever. Have you contacted your college about transcripts? Have you, yeah. you know, uh, a CV doesn't take a great deal of, you know, creative genius. You can mm-hmm. hash out like a draft version of that. You right. can like do, you know, there's a million little things that you can always be doing if you sit down and sort of force yourself. Um, yeah to do it and like on the days that you're feeling inspired great write some paragraphs um if you're not like sit down and do the monkey work where you're filling out the forms and Mm -hmm. and and all that sort of thing it's also part of uh sort of also part of the process um exactly yeah well i've enjoyed this conversation i think that you you've had some great insights in terms of how to think about the application process what you were looking for um and it's it's both like highly practical your reasons for doing this but also um i i liked the fact and i appreciated the fact that it had this personal connection which is you should like the people that you're going to be around and i'm convinced that that's like the one piece of advice that people um will almost always ignore <laughs> you say well I, this, this is cool i want to go to i don't care if i hate them it's like well talk to me in 14 months and and we'll see how that's going um and so, you know, I would, I would urge people to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. When you start the application process, one of the things that can be difficult to grasp because you're like, am I going to get in anywhere? This is so daunting. Um, everyone else who's applying has a, you know, perfect resume, perfect grades, perfect okay. test score that they can't imagine in their mind that they need to view this as a two-way process. Mm-hmm. They, the school is vetting you, but you should also actively be thinking about, is this a school that's good for me? And mm-hmm. so often you get in... Um, you know, you start a process and you say like, these are the five schools that are amazing and perfect. And I just got to go there. And you don't allow yourself through the course of the application process to maybe take some hints that, oh, this isn't really the best fit for me. Let me look in another direction. Mm -hmm. Or if you get admitted, you don't use that period between when you've been admitted and when you decide to really Mm -hmm. be serious about, um, you know, putting them through the same paces that they put you through in terms of like, Mm -hmm. look, is this a good match? This is a good school for me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And it is just like a job interview, right? You're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And like you said, if you tell yourself, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to hate it. I'm going to make myself do it. Everyone can tell. And it has such a huge impact in terms of how you conduct yourself during class and also during job interviews. I can't tell you how many times during when I was recruiting, I'd have employers ask me, well, why do you go to Emory? Like, what do you like about Emory? And if I couldn't answer that honestly, it would have been really awkward. But being able to have something I can gen- I can talk about where it, we could have a laugh about it, we could smile, something I was excited to talk about went such a long way to just making me come off as someone they wanted to work with and wanted to be around. And that has such a huge impact. Yeah, I think that's a perfect place, uh, a, a nice positive note uh, to end our conversation. Uh, Evan, once again, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Um, I wish you the best of luck in uh, your second uh, year at MBA. And um, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Once again, thank you to Evan Bailey from Emory Goizueta School of Business. In today's Consultants Corner, Sam and Nina help a listener who wants to know about the most common mistakes and how to avoid them. Take it away, Sam and Nina. All right, Nina. Um, Thomas or Tomas asks, what is the most common mistake you see in business school personal statements? How can I avoid it? Oh, I love that. I love this one <laughs> because I see um, there is there is something that I see consistently, and that is. There's a certain distance that is created when I think a lot of uh, applicants 
forget about the likability factor and their essays get uh, sort of weighed down with too much jargon. There's so much leveraging and, you know, it's all very, uh, you know, it's just like professional on steroids and the, the human being just gets completely lost. And I think you really, I think it's just so important to remember that at the end of the day, likability is hugely important and you have to be sure that your humanity and warmth and just the person does not get lost in, in kind of overly stiff language, too many, you know, and kind of what I was talking about um, in the question about tooting your own horn and, 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 and sounding like you're bragging. Um, I think, you know, if you, if you get lost in too many details about your accomplishments and, uh, and stuff like that, just the, the, the human gets lost. And I think it's really important to, uh, to keep it real and to be human and to have those moments, to have those warm warmer moments you know it's not like you're cracking jokes through the essay or anything like that but just keep the language conversational you know there's you know don't don't push too hard um and just and you know I, I think we've talked about this before but you know imagine like you're talking to a friend that you haven't seen in a long time or keep it keep it uh warm and friendly and um don't get overly stiff and use the word leveraging too much <laughs> and um that, that's basically um that, that that's a mistake that i see a lot is is uh just just too formal pushing too hard and not human enough not like the likability factor is lost so maybe yeah. really impressive but it's 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 you know yeah no, I, I, I'm, my response is pretty much exactly the same as you. We both read thousands of these, of these applications, essays, and I think that's the one thing that, that, that people often do is um, they'll, they'll forget that there's a human being behind the, the writing, or they'll write in such a way that it's hard to tell. You know, it could almost be some sort of algorithm sometimes, some, some bot that's, you know, just designed to, to, you know use all the jargon you know um jargon is a big one i think um and um using jargon i mean part of the problem with it is that um um it's it you become a stranger and you become like a um, um someone who you know use you, your term you not likable yeah and but there's someone who's just you can't tell that there's a real person behind it it just seems um the, you know you're using these empty terms this empty language and it's meaningless ultimately right um and i think some some applicants think oh if i use these fancy sounding words it's going to give me more authority and make me seem like a more eligible and serious candidate but the actually the opposite is true because if you don't if you use jargon or overuse jargon i mean um um it, it shows that maybe you don't really understand the 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 specificity of these terms so you know um leverage right you know that's a big word these days on trend right everyone's saying leveraging this leveraging that you know i leveraged my difficult childhood uh, uh i leveraged you know whatever i you know to um you know or adding value or paradigm shifts or leaning in or going forward or things that are scalable and so on i mean these are all terms that have specific meanings right and and you know they're they're aware of these meanings but if you use them too much and in the wrong way it it, it i think it, it becomes um uh just a forgettable uh application right so i think the important thing um a quote that i like a lot is um from you know i'm i'm, I'm the master of, of of quotes uh in these things is uh blaise pascal and he uh writes um um and i'll paraphrasing from the french but um what what delights me what surprises me about this writing is we expected just to encounter uh to read an author but you actually discovered a man right yeah now we can say woman or other whatever but but i think if there's a person behind there and if the writing is such that we feel that i think that's 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 one of the key things that you need to have in place um 
so yeah um i, I once in a, in a writing workshop um i think the the, the professor uh, she she distilled all of her wisdom into the advice don't be boring <laughs> and uh that's a hard one how do you not be boring you know how do you it's like saying don't you know be funny right if you don't right but I'm not asking you to be interesting, right? And your things, but I think just be, be, um, uh, you know, keep it real. And I think that that's what we're, we're talking about. All right, uh, Nina, do you have anything to add? Or I don't have anything to add, really. No, I mean that that's that's my advice too. Is is just that? I mean, I guess there is like certain navigation between, uh, you know, keeping you don't want to be too casual or too, you know, but. I, you know, I think if you're just clear, honest, straightforward, writing from the heart with passion, you know, and, uh, you know, you don't want to do like a Roland Barthes death of the author, like the, the author is very important. The author should be, should be there. <laughs> yeah. Um, it might help just one little technique that might help. Um, if you're struggling to, um, to write in that way that, that feels natural is actually and um, put aside your personal statement and just say it to a friend. You can have them record it. Just speak to a friend. Because I think, you know, when we forget in writing that there's actually a reader there that you're communicating with, that's where this kind of jargon and so on happens, right? So just actually record yourself or have someone record you telling your response, what you want to say in, in natural language. And you'll see, it, you'll learn a lot from that. Oh yeah, that's that. That is such great advice. I mean, that because you know there are there are certain um, certain clients too that I've worked with where they haven't uh, written their essay yet, and um, or they've written a draft. Oh, you know, they've written a draft, but they also fill out a, a questionnaire. And you know, it's so interesting the difference in language between the draft and the questionnaire. And you know, if you, I think you know when. Um, a lot of times when you're writing answers to a questionnaire, there's no pressure. It's just, you're, you know, you're just answering the questions and I'll read these questionnaires and look at this. And I was like, this should be in the essay, like exactly as you wrote it, you know, let just don't worry. Don't worry about, you know, just write or, you know, as if you're talking to someone exactly. So that's a great exercise. Thank you, Sam and Nina. If you would like help from Sam or Nina on your personal statement, you can find them at gurufi.com. That's G-U-R-U-F-I.com. They do fantastic work in terms of helping applicants build compelling and powerful personal statements that reflect their experiences, aspirations, and voice. And once again, thank you to Evan Bailey for his insights on his MBA journey and his time at Emory. And for all MBA applicants, be sure to check out gmacclub.com. They have frequent events that include top consultants, admissions committee officers, representatives from top schools giving insider tips and leading informational sessions. They got it all. Be sure to check the site frequently. It really is the best place on the internet to find a treasure trove of resources vetted by the company and your peer applicants. It's not full of spam reviews and uh, fake bots, etc. So thank you for joining us today. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with representatives from the Rotterdam School of Management, where we'll discuss how to build a career in Europe as well as that school's unique offerings. Until then, be well and goodbye.